our message this evening is 1 Thessalonians chapter 2, verses 9 to 12, verses 9 to 12 of the second chapter of 1 Thessalonians. Let's just read those verses. For you remember, brethren, our labour and toil for labouring night and day, that we might not be a burden to any of you. We preach to you the gospel of God. You are witnesses, and God also, how devoutly and justly and blamelessly we behaved ourselves among you who believe. As you know how we exhorted and comforted and charged every one of you as a father does his own children, that you would walk worthy of God who calls you into his own kingdom and glory. The advantage of going through a series like this is that you have to consider verses that you would never otherwise look at. And that is true of the parts that we are considering tonight because Paul here is doing something that none of us as Christians like doing. He's defending himself from criticisms that he had received from those in Thessalonica who were attacking his ministry. Uh, Paul and Silas and Timothy were the mission team that went to Thessalonica and under the power of the Holy Spirit, the gospel was preached and many people were converted, especially from the synagogue. And the religious leaders in the synagogue, a number of them didn't like that. And so they stirred up trouble and the way they did it was by attacking Paul's character. If you don't like the message, what do you do? You shoot the messenger. And what Paul has to do in this chapter is defend his character, not because he's all prickly and in need uh, to do that, because in personal circumstances, Jesus has told us to turn the other cheek. But because the ministry is under attack, and because a number of these young believers are being influenced by this slander, the apostle, for that reason, has to defend himself. And he's used, in this chapter, different pictures of the minister. And this is what we're doing. We're looking at these different metaphors of a pastor. And it's not just so that you as a people can know what a pastor should be like or what an assistant pastor should be like, but so that all of us can emulate something of these graces of the spirits. Now, the two metaphors we've already come across are stewards. A steward has to look after something for his master. And the one characteristic that has to be true of a steward is faithfulness. And then last time we looked at Paul using the metaphor of a mother. Does that surprise you? A mother caring for her children, nurturing her children. And pastors and believers are to be spiritual mothers. We're supposed to be gentle with one another. 
And now we're extending this metaphor of a parent to the father. That's what Paul is talking about in the verses that we have considered. And to many in Thessalonica, Paul was a spiritual father because they were converted under his preaching. But even if people are not converted under you, we're still, as ministers, to be father-like. And as Christians, we can all learn what it is to be like our heavenly father. It's interesting, isn't it, and extremely challenging, I find, that Paul says a number of times here, you know, you remember what we were like. Verse 1, for you, brethren, know our entrance in unto you. Verse 9, for ye remember, brethren. Verse 10, ye are witnesses, and God also is a witness. How many people can say that? God is a witness to the way I have been. I find these verses extremely challenging as well as comforting uh, in describing what we as ministers and we as Christians should be like. Let's look at two things this evening. First, Paul says, I have been an example to you of a father, a father's example. If we look at the verses in question, look at verses 9 and 10. The father's example. There's no point telling people you should be like a father unless you yourself are not living in that way. And this is what Paul is reminding them of in verses 9 and 10. For you remember, brethren, our labor and toil. That's the first thing he mentions in terms of his living amongst them. He worked. Many people in Thessalonica, in the church, because they thought that Jesus Christ was about to come back in their lifetime, they had this super spiritual attitude that there was no point in working anymore. They just said, basically, He's going to come back any day soon, so there's no point going into work. There's no point being diligent. We, we've just got to sit back and wait for that momentous day. They were right to look forward to his second coming, and we can learn from that. But they were unspiritual, as super spirituality tends to be. They were unspiritual in thinking that in the meantime... They should not work. And Paul uses an interesting uh, phrase here. Our labor and toil. What these words imply is hard work. What they talk about is sweat, physical labor. So Paul isn't just talking here about his work as a minister. He's talking about his tent making. What's that? Well, we saw last time that Paul didn't want to be a burden. Uh, let me read again verse 9. For you remember, brethren, our labor and toil, for laboring night and day, that we might not be a burden to any of you. That means he didn't want to be a financial burden to the Thessalonians. So instead of depending on their giving in order to make ends meet, Paul had a secular job, as we would say, and that was tent making, literally. 
Paul had learnt the trade of tent making, and this is what he means by labour and toil. Have you ever made a tent? I've put a tent up, and that's hard work. But to make a tent would, of course, be much harder. And they didn't have lightweight tents as they do today in the Apostles' Day. So think of this great man of God, the Apostle to the Gentiles, spirit-empowered preaching, a great blessing in Thessalonica, and the amount of time he would have invested in people and in preparing his messages. And still, he would have built tents in order to make ends meet. You've got to take your hat off to this man. Now, does that mean that myself and Andy should learn tent making? Of course not. Maybe there are smaller churches where the congregation can't afford to pay the pastor. And the pastor has to have a tent making job then to bring money in. Our Calvinistic Methodist forefathers were very savvy in this regard. They were ahead of their times. They married wives that were either very rich or who worked. Now you've got to give it to them. Thomas Charles of Bala, uh, he had a wife who kept a shop. Uh, John Elias's wife, I think, kept a shop in order to release the husband to the work of the ministry. But in most circumstances, the biblical model is for the congregation, as we saw last time, so I'm not going to go over this, for the congregation to provide physically for God's servants so that God's servants are released then to provide spiritually, uh, particularly the word of God. But what about you as a congregation? Today is a Sunday. We hold to the fourth commandment, don't we? to set aside one day in seven to the Lord. But that's only half of the fourth commandment. Do you know what else the fourth commandment says? Six days you shall work. And I don't think God is only thinking of paid employment. God has put us in this world to work. That's why I think it is good before a man is called into the ministry, that he just works. This is what we are here for. Otherwise, God could just take us straight to glory, but he doesn't do that. He puts us here to work. And this is the glory of the Christian life. This is what Martin Luther rediscovered in the Protestant Reformation, that it's not just what we do in church that is something done for the Lord, but everything that we do is to be done to the glory of God. Praise in the common things of life, the normal things of life, eating and drinking, going into work, going into college, going to school. It's goings out and in, in each duty and each deed, however small and mean. Do we have this biblical view that we are here to work, whether we're in paid employment or not, and that our work is a means of glorifying God, and we don't have to be in the ministry or on the mission field to do that. In one sense, all of life is a mission field, and isn't that the case today? 
You don't have to go out into the mission field today. We've got the mission field here on our doorsteps. Um, I don't know how many of you would have remembered Cardinal Aldis. He was a consultant, I think, in the hospital, and he used to lecture as well, uh, medical students. He was a lecturer. And he, he used to start his lectures with a word of prayer. Now, I'm not saying that we should do that in our workplace, but the mentality is right. He treated his medical work as spiritual as his preaching, because he was also a lay preacher. I like that. I like that. So let us not think of what we're going to do this week as unspiritual. Let us not think that it's a waste of time. God has put you where you are in order to work and to serve him in your work. May we not just spend our time watching Netflix or something, but may, may we just live to work for the Lord. That doesn't mean we shouldn't rest, but God has put you, us here to work. And then something else Paul says, not only his work, but his witness. For you remember, verse 9, brethren, our labor and toil for laboring night and day, the tent making, that we might not be a burden to any of you. We preached to you the gospel of God. We preached. The word for preaching there means herald, and that means what I'm doing tonight. This calling, this special calling, that God sets a man apart to declare the gospel, to herald the good news of Jesus Christ. Paul, writing to a young minister, Timothy, one of the last letters he wrote, one to uh, Thessalonians was one of the first letters. Second Timothy was one of the last. He reminded Timothy, do the work of an evangelist. That means even as a minister, Timothy was to preach the gospel. Uh, I, I find that it's the greatest privilege of being a pastor to preach the gospel. Uh, I'm so encouraged that you students are involved in a gospel mission this week. And the best way of getting us all to be witnesses, because that's what we're to be. We're all to be gossipers of the gospel. So just as Paul was a preacher of the gospel, a herald of the gospel, we're all put in this world, not just to work, but to witness to what Jesus Christ has done for us. And isn't that what gossiping the gospel is? We gossip about things that are near and dear to us. And oh, that God would so make Jesus Christ precious to us that we couldn't help but talk about him. And I know there is a place to discuss how we can evangelize better, but in my limited experience there's nothing that inspires evangelism more than hearing the gospel preached as believers being reminded of what Christ has done a witness a witness and then he mentions his walk his walk you are witnesses verse 10 and God also how devoutly and justly and blamelessly three things the walk what's the walk of a Christian are you walking the walk? We're not just here to talk the talk, but to walk the walk. What's the walk of the Christian? We've got to be careful here. We're not saying that our walk is perfect. 
Have you, have you tried walking in this wind? Did, did you go out on uh, Friday? I, I tried to go for a jog. And it, it was a struggle, especially when you were going into the wind. And is, isn't that a picture of the walk of the Christian? Come wind, come weather. We are going in a new direction. We were going in the opposite direction. But God has saved us from that kingdom of darkness. And now we're in the kingdom of light. And we're walking in a new direction. But that doesn't mean that we're perfect. Just like walking in the wind and the rain, you may take a few steps back occasionally. You may be swayed. You may even be blown over. But you get back up and you carry on walking. Uh, let me just read some verses that may help us here. I find 1 John chapter 1 very helpful when we're talking about our walk. Are you still walking with the Lord? I don't want to put you off as students, but I can remember a number of people who were in the Christian Union the same time as me in Abba in the early 90s, and they're no longer walking with the Lord. Praise God, we are still walking with the Lord. But let us not take that for granted. Listen to John in his first letter, chapter 1. The walk of the Christian doesn't mean we're perfect. John, I think, puts it right when he puts it like this. If, verse 6, if we say that we have fellowship with him and walk in darkness, we lie and do not practice the truth. We were in darkness but now we're in the light. But if we walk in the light as he is in the light, we have fellowship with one another and the blood of Jesus Christ, his son, cleanses us from all sin. But there's a proviso here. If we say that we have no sin, we deceive ourselves and the truth is not in us. So the walk is the direction of our life, the tenor of our life. And it doesn't mean we're perfect. It means we may fall and we may fail, but praise be to God, we are still going in the right direction. And so McShane said, very challenging words, the people's greatest need um, my personal holiness. My people's greatest need is my personal holiness. We don't need better methods. We need better people, better men, better women, over a closer walk with God. Look at the words Paul uses here to describe his walk. You are witnesses and God also. How devoutly. The word there is holy. Paul's walk was holy. What does the word holy mean here? Not holier than thou. Paul is not thinking about religiosity. The word holy here means set apart. Set apart to the Lord. We're all priests. The priesthood of all believers. And what the priest had written on uh, what he wore on his head was holiness to the Lord. Do you see yourself, Christian, as set apart to the Lord? It's not so much having a list of things that we do and don't do. It's having this new mindset, the propulsive power of a new affection. We realize that we no longer belong to the world that we once lived in. We now serve a new master, and so we're set apart. And then he uses another word, justly. A better translation is righteous. Paul was righteous. So holy describes his relationship to God, set apart to the Lord. Righteous describes his relationship to those around him. Paul had integrity. 
Paul wasn't seeking to be uh, a politician. He was seeking to please God, not men. He only wanted to do what was right, even if it brought him difficulties. And then the third thing, blameless. This is to do with uh, the world, our relationship to the world outside. Uh, An elder, according to the criteria, has to be blameless, not perfect, but has to have a good report. Uh, Do we have a good report just as Christians? Do people speak well of us? What did Paul say to the Philippians? Blameless and harmless in a corrupt world. Isn't that a powerful witness? If, if we're in the workplace with integrity, isn't that going to speak volumes to people? Aren't people going to start asking you then, tell me, why are you different? What's the reason? What's the reason? And you can give them the answer. It's not about me. It's about Jesus Christ and what he has done for me. I remember hearing from somebody how they wanted to bring something into the church. They wanted to change something. Doesn't matter what it was, right? And all the minister said to them was this, show me by your life. Show me by your life. Isn't that the most powerful witness? Show by your life. 1 Peter, not chapter 4, but chapter 2. The believers, they were just being persecuted. And the people round about them, they just didn't like them. So Peter put it like this. Have your conduct honorable among the Gentiles, that when they do speak against you as evildoers, because they're going to do that because they hate the light of Christ in you, they may by your good works which they observe glorify God. Let's not just talk the talk, but walk the walk. So there's Paul's example. Paul's example, very challenging. And then very quickly, Paul's exhortation. He did talk the talk as well. But that talk is backed up by his walk. So what did Paul say? Verse 11. We exhorted. We exhorted. What's exhorted? Encouraged. Barnabas, Paul's first companion, was the son of encouragement. What what is it to be an encourager? One of the loveliest examples in the Bible is in the Old Testament, and it's Jonathan. You know the accounts when David was a fugitive before he became king? King Saul was after him. He wanted to kill him, and David had to run away, and he was basically alone. I know a little time later, a band of men joined him in the cave of Adullam, but at first, David was by himself. He was toxic. No one wanted to be associated with him. And yet Jonathan, Saul's son, had deep bonds of friendship with David. And so on one occasion, 
Jonathan met up with David, and the phrase that is used is very good. This is what encouragement is. Jonathan strengthened his hands in the Lord. That's what exhort means, to encourage. Don't we need that today, don't we? It's tough, isn't it, being a Christian? And pastors are to encourage the people. What's a word of encouragement? A word of encouragement builds you up. A word of encouragement puts iron into your soul. A word of encouragement leaves you wanting to do better. A word of encouragement inspires you to carry on with the Lord. How often our words are not encouraging. We discourage. We bring ourselves down, especially if we're Welsh. Our tendency is to look within and we can drag ourselves down if we're not careful. We can just moan about the situation and talk about the lack of blessing. And all we're doing is bringing us down and we're bringing those round about us down. To encourage is to build up. Listen to Warren Wearsby. He's good here. Paul not only made them feel better, but he made them want to do better. A father must not pamper a child. Rather, he must encourage the child to go right back and try over again. Christian encouragement must not become an anesthesia that puts us to sleep. It must be a stimulant that awakens us to do better. Oh, may God make me May God make Andy, may God make us as elders, may God make us as believers, because we're all to bear one another's burdens. We're all to encourage one another. May, may we only say what will be profitable, what will build up. May we not discourage. May we be constructive, not destructive, because there are too many broken Christians around. My saviour, Yes, if he does bring us down, it's only in order to bind. Jesus Christ, it was said of him, would not break the bruised reed or quench the smoking flax. May all of us be sons and daughters of encouragements. I think it's right to say, uh, Derek Swan, if you went to see Derek Swan, you would leave much better than when you first went in, he was an encourager, an encourager. And then the next word, comforts, comforts, exhorts and comforts, comfort. The word used for comfort here is the same word that's used uh, of Jesus comforting Mary and Martha uh, when they were grieving on the death of their brother Lazarus. What do you say to a person who's grieving? We tend to think, I've got to say something, don't we? And we can just uh, garble out things. But if you comfort a person, you don't often have to say anything. It's just being there, getting alongside the person. I, I remember once in a church service, a minister was at the vestry, and a person in the congregation had been through a horrendous trial, a really terrible, terrible time. And all this minister did, 
as he passed this person in the vestry, was put his hand on their shoulder. That's all he did. We can just mouth sometimes pious platitudes. Comfort, comfort. May we be a comfort to one another. It's sad, isn't it, how often as evangelicals the world can be kinder. Oh, may the milk of human kindness be uh, in us. May, may people come to our little church and see how kind we are, how kind. What did uh, we sing in the first hymn? Thinking of being fathers, spiritual fathers, how God is kind as a father. Father-like, he tends and spares us. Well, our feeble frame, he knows. He won't crush us. Well, our feeble frame, he knows. And then very quickly, just to get the balance, Paul says, and charged. That doesn't mean arrest, okay? It means speaking firmly. The problem is, if we're just comforting, and even if we're just encouraging, we can become skewed. Paul was firm in his care of the flock as a spiritual father. Yes, he was gentle as a mother. Yes, he was an encourager, never dragged people down. But at the same time, he was firm. I think you could say of Paul that he was a gentleman. There's a lot of talk today, and rightly so, about the need to be manly. But let us beware that being manly doesn't lead us to an extreme where we're brusque. We need to be gentle manly, gentle men, gentle women. Again, a person shared this with me, how this elderly Christian lady, she would just say to him, get on with it. That, that's all she would say, get on with it. Look, you, you've got to carry on. You, you've just got to. <laughs> we don't just pamper, do we, our children? We, we don't just tell them everything is going to be all right, just forget about that horrible world out there. We, we do comfort them, but at the same time, we want them to stand up for themselves. Get on with it. Another word for charged is testify, testify. I like the way Paul puts it in um, 2 Corinthians 1. He says, God comfort us in all our trouble so that we can comfort those in any trouble with the same comfort we ourselves have received from God. So if you were to ask Paul, Paul, you've been through this horrendous time uh, being criticized like this. You had to leave Thessalonica because of persecution and the people who are against you there, they are charging you with being a coward, whereas you had no choice. And Paul is saying, it's all right, you know, it's all right. God is in control. God's work of providence, as we heard of this morning, and God is working in me so that when I then come across people who are really going through it, I know how to empathize with them. I'm testifying of God's fatherly care. In one sense, after hearing what Paul has to say in defending himself here, we're thinking, I'm never going to be like that. Who is sufficient for these things? None of us are sufficient. 
but God is. And we can do all things through Christ who strengthens us. And when Christ brings us into a dark place, when everything else around us gives way, when people abandon us and we're left with Christ, only Christ can satisfy. And you know what? You can come out of that dark place and you can see other people having difficulties and you can say to them, it's all right, it's all right. I've been there and I know, I know Christ can so draw near to you that he can bring you through as well. What a brilliance Pastor Paul was. What a wonderful saviour we have. In a sense, you see, all Paul is doing is bearing witness to his saviour. That's all he's doing. Paul's a spiritual father because he's emulating his master, Jesus Christ. And may we see Christ, see Christ in one another. May it be Christ that we're focusing on as we go into another week. In one sense, it's not pastors you want to be looking at. Is there a danger for us to try and make pastors into Christ? It's Christ that can satisfy all our longings. No pastor can. It is Christ that can lead us through this world. It is Christ that can strengthen us when all other resources of strength have drained. And it's Christ who's our commander. It's Christ who is our leader. And I just want to end by just urging us, look to Christ. May we who are pastors here just help you to focus on Christ. We're in a spiritual battle and Christ is our general, our commander. You know, uh, reading about uh, military leaders is very inspiring. How they would often get alongside their men and how they would inspire their men, not just to go into battle, but to die in battle. May Christ have all in all in this place. And may we march as Christian soldiers looking unto Jesus who is gone before, for his name's sake. We'll sing now, Onward, Christian Soldiers. Onward, Christian Soldiers, marching as to war, looking unto Jesus. And we're all in this together. Like a mighty army moves the church of God. Brothers, sisters, we are treading where the saints, where Paul, where the Thessalonians have trod. We are not divided all one body we, one in hope and doctrine, one in charity. That means love. Let's stand and sing this great hymn of triumph.
glory, praise, and honor unto Christ and Christ alone, the King. Forgive us, Father, for often putting men on pedestals, for having Paul's or Apollos's or Peter's, or help us as a church to focus on Christ. And we just thank Thee, Father, that we are one in Him. Forgive us if we are fighting civil wars. May our battle not be against flesh and blood, but against principalities and powers of darkness. And we pray in Jesus' name that the devil's works may be destroyed and that the glorious kingdom of Jesus Christ will march and gain ground. Help us to emulate these graces that we've been considering tonight by the enabling of thy spirits. And now may the grace of our Lord Jesus Christ and the love of God and the fellowship of the Holy Spirit be with us all forevermore. Amen.